Chapter 7 of Historical Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Historical Mysteries by Andrew Lang. Chapter 7 The Gallery Conspiracy. The singular events called the Gallery Conspiracy, or the slaying of the Ruthvens, fell out on evidence which nobody disputes, in the following manner. On August 5, 1600, the king, James the Sixth was leaving the stables at the house of Falkland to hunt a buck, when the master of Ruthven rode up and had an interview with the monarch. This occurred about seven o'clock in the morning. The master was a youth of nineteen. He was residing with his brother, the Earl of Gowrie, aged twenty-two, at the family townhouse in Perth, some twelve or fourteen miles from Falkland. The interview being ended, the king followed the hounds, and the chase, long and sore, ended in a kill at about eleven o'clock near Falkland. Thence the king and the master, with some fifteen of the royal retinue, including the Duke of Lennox and the Earl of Mar, rode without any delay to Perth. Others of the king's company followed. The whole number may have been at most twenty-five. On their arrival at Perth, it appeared that they had not been expected. The earl had dined at noon, the royal dinner was delayed till two o'clock, and after the scanty meal the king and the master went upstairs alone, while the earl of Gowrie took Lennox and others into his garden, bordering on the Tay, at the back of the house. While they loitered there eating cherries, a retainer of Gowrie, Thomas Cranston, brother of Sir John of that ilk, brought a report that the king had already mounted and ridden off through the inch of Perth. Gowrie called for horses, but Cranston told him that his horses were at Scone, across the Tay, two miles off. The gentleman then went to the street door of the house, where the porter said that the king had not ridden away. Gowrie gave him the lie, re-entered the house, went upstairs, and returning, assured Lennox that James had certainly departed. All this is proved on oath by Lennox, Mar, Lindores, and many other witnesses. While the company stood in doubt, outside the gate, a turret window above them opened, and the king looked forth, much agitated, shouting treason, and crying for help to Mar. With Lennox and most of the others, Mar ran to the rescue up the main staircase of the house, where they were stopped by a locked door, which they could not break open. Gowrie had not gone with his guests to aid the king. He was standing in the street, asking, What is the matter? I know nothing. When two of the king's household, Thomas and James Erskine, tried to seize him, the treason be perpetrated under Gowrie's own roof. His friends drove the Erskines off, and some of the Murrays of Tullibardine, who were attending a wedding in Perth, surrounded him. Gowrie retreated, drew a pair of twin swords, and accompanied by Cranston and others, made his way into the quadrangle of his house. At the foot of a small, dark staircase, they saw the body of a man lying, wounded or dead. Cranston now rushed up the dark stairs, followed by Gowrie, two Ruthvens, Hugh Moncrief, Patrick Avoit, and perhaps others. At the head of the narrow spiral stair, they found, in a room called the gallery chamber, Sir Thomas Erskine, a lame Dr. Harrys, a young gentleman of the royal household named John Ramsay, and Wilson, a servant with drawn swords. A fight began. Cranston was wounded. He and his friends fled, leaving Gallery, who had been run through the body by Ramsay. All this while the other door of the long gallery chamber was ringing under the hammer strokes of Lennox and his company, and the town bell was summoning the citizens. 
Erskine and Ramsay now locked the door opening on the narrow stair at which the retainers of Gowrie struck with axes. The king's party, by means of a hammer handed by their friends through a hole in the other door of the gallery, forced the lock and admitted Lennox, Mar, and the rest of the king's retinue. They let James out of a small turret opening from the gallery chamber, and, after some dealings with the angry mob and the magistrates of Perth, they conveyed the king to Falkland after nightfall. The whole results were the death of Gowrie and his brother, the master, his body it was that lay at the foot of the narrow staircase, and a few wounds to Ramsay, Dr. Harry's, and some of Gowrie's retainers. The death of the master of Ruthven was explained thus. When James cried treason, young Ramsay, from the stable door, had heard his voice but not his words. He had sped into the quadrangle, charged up the narrow stairs, found a door behind which was the sound of a struggle, dang in the door, and saw the king wrestling with the master. Behind them stood a man, the center of the mystery, of whom he took no notice. He drew his winger, slashed the master in the face and throat, and pushed him downstairs. Ramsay then called from the window to Sir Thomas Erskine, who, with Harry's and Wilson, ran to his assistance, slew the wounded master, and shut up James, who had no weapon, in the turret. Then came the struggle in which Gowrie died. No more was seen of the mysterious man in the turret, except by a townsman who later withdrew his evidence. Such was the whole affair, as witnessed by the king's men, the retainers of Gowrie, and some citizens of Perth. Not a vestige of plot or plan by Gowrie and his party was discoverable. His friends maintained that he had meant, on that day, to leave Perth for Lothian, that is, for his castle at Durleton, near North Berwick, whither he had sent most of his men and provisions. James had summoned the master to meet him at Falkland, they said, and Gowrie had never expected the return of the master with the king. James's own version was given in a public letter of the night of the events, which we only know through the report of Nicholson, the English resident at Holyrood, August 6th and Nicholson only repeated what Elphinstone, the secretary, told him of the contents of the letter, written to the king's dictation at Falkland by David Moisey, a notary. At the end of August, James printed and circulated a full narrative, practically identical with Nicholson's report of Elphinstone's report of the contents of the Falkland letter of August 5th. The king's narrative is universally accepted on all hands, till we come to the point where he converses with Alexander Ruthven at Falkland before the buckhap began. There was such an interview, lasting for about a quarter of an hour, but James alone knew its nature. He says that, after an unusually low obeisance, Ruthven told him the following tale. Walking alone on the previous evening in the fields near Perth, he had met a base-like fellow, unknown to him, with a cloak cast about his mouth, a common precaution to avoid recognition. Asked who he was and what his errand, in so solitary a part being far from all aways, the fellow was taken aback. Ruthven seized him, and under his arm found a great wide pot, all full of coined gold in great pieces. Ruthven, keeping the secret to himself, took the man to Perth, and locked him in a privy durned house, that is, a room. At 4 a.m. he himself left Perth to tell the king, urging him to take order in the matter at once, as not even Lord Gowrie knew of it. When James said that it was no business of his, the gold not being treasure trove, Ruthven called him over-scrupulous adding that his brother, Gowrie, and other great men might interfere. James then, suspecting that the gold might be foreign, brought in by Jesuits for the use of Catholic intriguers, asked what the coins and their bearer were like. Ruthven replied that the bearer seemed to be a Scots fellow, hitherto unknown to him, and that the gold was apparently of foreign mintage. Hereon, James felt sure that the gold was foreign and the bearer a disguised Scots priest. He therefore proposed to send back with Ruthven a retainer of his own with a warrant to Gowrie, then provost of Perth, and the Baileys, to take over the man and the money. 
Ruthven replied that if they did, the money would be ill-reckoned, and begged the king to ride over at once, be the first seer, and reward him at his own honorable discretion. The oddity of the tale and the strangeness of Ruthven's manner amazed James, who replied that he would give an answer when the hunt was over. Ruthven said the man might make a noise and discover the whole affair, causing the treasure to be meddled with. He himself would be missed by Gowrie, whereas if James came at once, Gowrie and the townsfolk would be at the sermon. James made no answer, but followed the hounds. Still, he brooded over the story, sent for Ruthven, and said that the hunt once ended, he would accompany him to Perth. Here, James adds that, though he himself knew not that any man was with Ruthven, he had two companies, one of whom, Andrew Henderson, he now dispatched to Gowrie, bidding him prepare dinner for the king. This is not part of James's direct evidence. He was unknowing and unsuspecting that any man living had come with Ruthven. Throughout the chase, Ruthven was ever near the king, always urging him to hasten the end of the hunting. The buck was slain close to the stables, and Ruthven would not allow James to wait for a second horse. That was sent after him. So the king did not even tarry to brittle the buck, and merely told the Duke of Lennox, Mar, and others that he was riding to Perth to speak with Gowrie, and would return before evening. Some of the court went to Falkland for fresh horses, others followed slowly with weary steeds. They followed undesired by him, because a report rose that the king had some purpose to apprehend the oppressive master of Oliphant. Ruthven implored James not to bring Lennox and Mar, but only three or four servants, to which the king answered half angrily. This odd conduct roused suspicion in James. He had been well acquainted with Ruthven, who was suing for the place of a gentleman of the bedchamber, or cubicular. The farthest that the king's suspicion could reach to was that it might be that the earl, his brother, had handled him so hardly that the young gentleman, being of a high spirit, had taken such displeasure as he was beside himself. Hence his curious, agitated, and moody behavior. James, as they rode, consulted Lennox, whose first wife had been a sister of Gowrie. Lennox had never seen anything of mental unsettlement in the young Ruthven, but James bade the duke accompany him into that house, room, where the gold and the bearer of it lay. Lennox thought the story of the gold unlikely. Ruthven, seeing them in talk, urged that James should be secret and bring nobody with him to the first inspection of the treasure. The king thus rode forward between trust and distrust. About two miles from Perth, Ruthven sent on his other companion, Andrew Ruthven, to Gowrie. When within a mile of Perth, Ruthven himself rode forward in advance. Gowrie was at dinner, having taken no notice of the two earlier messengers. Gowrie, with fifty or sixty men, met James at the end of the inch. The royal retinue was then of fifteen persons, with swords alone, and no daggers or wingers. Dinner did not appear till an hour had gone by, say two p.m. James whispered to Ruthven that he had better see the treasure at once. Ruthven bade him wait, and not arouse Gowrie's suspicions by whispering, rounding. James therefore directed his conversation to Gowrie, getting from him but half-words and imperfect sentences. When dinner came, Gowrie stood pensively by the king's table, often whispering to the servants, and oft-times went in and out, as he also did before dinner. The suite stood about, as was custom, till James had nearly dined, when Gowrie took them to their dinner, separately in the hall. He sat not down with them, as the common manner is, but again stood silent beside the king, who bantered him in a homely manner. James, having sat long enough, Ruthven whispered that he wished to be rid of his brother, so James sent Gowrie into the hall to offer a kind of grace cup to the suite, as was usual, this by Ruthven's desire. James then rose to follow Ruthven, asking him to bring Sir Thomas Erskine with him. 
Ruthven requested James to command publicly that none should follow at once, promising that he should make any one or two follow that he pleased to call for. The king then, expecting attendants who never came because Ruthven never summoned them, walked alone with Ruthven across the end of the hall, up a staircase, and through three or four chambers, Ruthven ever locking behind him every door as he passed. We do not know whether James observed the locking of the doors, or inferred it from the later discovery that one door was locked. Then Ruthven showed a more smiling countenance than he had all the day before, ever saying that he had him sure and safe enough kept. At last they reached a little study, a turret chamber, where James found not a bondman, but a freedman with a dagger at his girdle, and a very abased countenance. Ruthven locked the turret door, put his hat on his head, drew the man's dagger, pointed it at the king's breast, avowing now that the king behoved to be in his will and used as he list, threatening murder if James cried out or opened the window. He also reminded the king of the death of the late Gowrie, his father, executed for treason in 1584. Meanwhile, the other man stood trembling and quaking. James made a long harangue on many points, promising pardon and silence if Ruthven at once let him go. Ruthven then uncovered and promised that James's life should be safe if he kept quiet. The rest, Gowrie would explain. Then, bidding the other man ward the king, he went out, locking the door behind him. He had first made James swear not to open the window. In his brief absence, James learned from the armed man that he had but recently been locked up in the turret. He knew not why. James bade him open the window on his right hand. The man did as he was commanded. Here the king's narrative reverts to matter not within his own observation, the events which occurred downstairs during his own absence. His narrative is amply confirmed on oath by many nobles and gentlemen. He says, here we repeat what we began by stating, that during his own absence, as his train was rising from dinner, one of the earl's servants, Cranston, came hastily in, assuring the earl that the king had got to horse and was away through the inch, isle, of Perth. The earl reported this to the nobles, and all rushed to the gate. The porter assured them that the king had not departed. Gowrie gave the porter the lie, but turning to Lennox and Mar, said that he would get sure information. He then ran back across the court and upstairs and returned, running, with the news that the king was gone, long since by the back gate, and unless they hasted would not be overtaken. The nobles, going towards the stables for their horses, necessarily passed under the window of the turret on the first floor where James was imprisoned. Ruthven, by this time, had returned thither, casting his hands abroad in a desperate manner as a man lost. Then, saying there was no help for it, the king must die, he tried to bind the royal hands with his garter. In the struggle, James drew Ruthven towards the window, already open. At this nick of time, when the king's friends were standing in the street below, Gowrie with them, James, holding out the right side of his head and his right elbow, shouted for help. Gowrie stood, ever asking what it meant, but Lennox, Mar, and the others, as we saw, instantly ran in and up the chief's staircase to find the king. Meanwhile, James, in his agony, pushed Ruthven out of the turret, the said Mr. Alexander's head under his arms, and himself on his knees, towards the chamber door which opened on the dark staircase. James was trying to get hold of Ruthven's sword and draw it, the other fellow doing nothing but standing behind the king's back and trembling all the time. At this moment, a young gentleman of the royal household, John Ramsay, entered from the dark back staircase and struck Ruthven with his dagger. The other fellow withdrew. James then pushed Ruthven down the back stairs, where he was slain by Sir Thomas Erskine and Dr. Harris, who were coming up by that way. The rest with the death of Gowrie followed. A tumult of the townsmen, lasting for two or three hours, delayed the return of James to Falkland. 
such is the king's published narrative it tallies closely with the letter written by nicholson the english agent to cecil on august sixth james had thus his version from which he never varied ready on the evening of the fatal day of august fifth from his narrative only one inference can be drawn gowrie and his brother had tried to lure james almost unattended to their house in the turret they had an armed man who would assist the master to seize the king events frustrated the conspiracy james was well attended the armed man turned coward and gowrie proclaimed the king's departure falsely to make his suite follow back to falkland and so leave the king in the hands of his captors the plot once arranged could not be abandoned because the plotters had no prisoner with a pot of gold to produce so their intended treason would have been manifest how far is james's tale corroborated at the posthumous trial of the ruthvens in november witnesses like lennox swore to his quarter of an hour of talk with ruthven at falkland before the hunt the early arrival of andrew henderson at gowrie's house about half-past ten is proved by two gentlemen named hay and one named moncrief who were then with gowrie on business to which he at once refused to attend further in the case of the hayes henderson's presence with ruthven at falkland is also confirmed by a manuscript vindication of the ruthvens issued at the time none of the king's party saw him and their refusal to swear that they did see him shows their honesty the point being essential thus the circumstance that gowrie ordered no dinner for the king despite henderson's early arrival with news of his coming shows that gowrie meant to affect being taken by surprise again the flight of henderson on the very night of august fifth proves that he was implicated why else should a man fly who had not been seen by anyone except a perth witness who withdrew his evidence in connection with the fatal events no other man fled except some of gowrie's retainers who took open part in the fighting james's opinion that ruthven was deranged in consequence of harsh treatment by his brother gowrie is explained by a dispute between the brothers about the possession of the church lands of scone which gowrie held and ruthven desired the king siding with ruthven this is quite casually mentioned in a contemporary manuscript again lennox on oath averred that as they rode to perth james told him the story of the lure the pot of gold lennox was a man of honor and he had married gowrie's sister ruthven on his return to gowrie's house told a retainer craigengilt that he had been on an errand not far off and accounted for the king's arrival by saying that he was brought by the royal saddler to exact payment of a debt to the man now james had just given gowrie a year's immunity from pursuit of creditors and there is no trace of the saddler's presence clearly ruthven lied to craigengilt he had been at falkland not on an errand not far off that cranston gowrie's man brought the news or rumor of the king's departure was admitted by himself that gowrie went into the house to verify the fact insisted that it was true gave the lie to the porter who denied it and tried to make the king's party take horse and follow was provided by lennox lindores ray a magistrate of perth the porter himself and others on oath that the king was locked in by a door which could not be burst open is a matter of undisputed certainty all these are facts that when a ding and down to be disputed they were disputed however when henderson gowrie's factor or steward and a town councillor of perth came out of hiding between august eleventh and august twentieth told his story and confessed to having been the man in the turret he said that on the night of august fourth gowrie bade him ride very early next day with the master of ruthven to falkland and return with any message that ruthven might send he did return when the hayes and moncrief saw him with the news that the king was coming an hour later gowrie bade him put on a shirt of mail and plate sleeves as he meant to arrest a highlander in the shoe-gate later the king arriving henderson was sent to ruthven in the gallery and told to do whatever he was bidden ruthven then locked him up in the turret giving no explanation 
Presently, the king was brought into the turret, and Henderson pretends that to a faint extent he hampered the violence of Ruthven. During the struggle between Ramsay and Ruthven, he slunk downstairs, went home, and fled that night. It was denied that Henderson had been at Falkland at all. Nobody swore to his presence there, yet it is admitted by the contemporary apologist, who accuses the king of having organized a whole conspiracy against the Ruthvens. It was said that nobody saw Henderson slink away out of the narrow stair, though the quadrangle was crowded. One Robertson, however, a notary of Perth, gave evidence, September 23rd, that he did see Henderson creep out of the narrow staircase and step over the master's dead body. Robertson spoke to him, but he made no reply. If Robertson perjured himself on September 23rd, he withdrew his evidence, or rather, he omitted it, at the trial in November. His life would not have been worth living in Perth, where the people were partisans of the Ruthvens, if he had adhered to his first statement. In the absence of other testimony, many fables were circulated as to Henderson's absence from Perth all through the day, and on the other hand, as to his presence in the kitchen during the crisis. He was last seen, for certain, in the house just before the king's dinner, and then, by his account, was locked up in the turret by the master. Probably Robertson's first story was true. Other witnesses, to shield their neighbors, denied having seen retainers of galleries who most assuredly were present at the brawls in the quadrangle. It was never explained why Henderson fled at once if he was not the man in the turret. I therefore conceive that as he certainly was at Falkland, and certainly returned early, his story is true in the main. Given all this, only one of two theories is possible. The affair was not incidental. James did not fall into a panic and bellow treason out of the window merely because he found himself alone in a turret. And why in a secluded turret with the master? To that theory, the locked door of the gallery is a conclusive reply. Somebody locked it for some reason. Therefore, either the Ruthvens plotted against the king or the king plotted against the Ruthvens. Both parties had good grounds for hatred, as we shall show. That is, Gowrie and James had motives for quarrel. But with the young master, whose cause, as regards the lands of Scone, the king espoused, he had no reason for anger. If James was guilty, how did he manage his intrigue? With motives for hating Gowrie, let us say, the king lays his plot. He chooses for it a day when he knows that the Murrays of Tullibardine will be in Perth at the wedding of one of the clan. They will defend the king from the townsfolk, clients of their provost, Gowrie. James next invites Ruthven to Falkland. This was asserted by Ruthven's defenders. He arrives at the strangely early hour of 6.30 a.m. James has already invented the story of the pot of gold to be confided to Lennox as proof that Ruthven is bringing him to Perth, that he has not invited Ruthven. Next, by secretly spreading a rumor that he means to apprehend the master of Oliphant, James secures a large train of retainers, let us say 25 men, without firearms, while he escapes the suspicion that would be aroused if he ordered them to accompany him. James has determined to sacrifice Ruthven, with whom he had no quarrel whatever, merely as bait to draw Gowrie into a trap. Having put Lennox off with a false reason for his accompanying Ruthven alone in the house of Gowrie, James privately arranges that Ruthven shall quietly summon him, or Erskine, to follow upstairs, meaning to goad Ruthven into a treasonable attitude just as they appear on the scene. He calculates that Lennox, Erskine, or both will then stab Ruthven without asking questions, and that Gowrie will rush up to avenge his brother and be slain. But here His Majesty's deeply considered plot, on a superficial view, breaks down, since Ruthven, for reasons best known to himself, summons neither Lennox nor Erskine. James, observing this circumstance, rapidly and cleverly remodels his plot and does not begin to provoke the brawl till being, heaven knows why, in the turret. He hears his train talking outside in the street. 
he had shrewdly provided for their presence there by ordering a servant of his own to spread the false rumor of his departure which cranston innocently brought why did the king do this as his original idea involved no need of such a stratagem he had also somehow persuaded gowrie to credit the rumor in the face of the porter's denial of its possibility and to persist in it after making no very serious attempt to ascertain its truth to succeed in making gowrie do this in place of thoroughly searching the house is certainly the king's most striking and inexplicable success the king has thus two strings to his nefarious bow the first was that ruthven by his orders would bring erskine and lennox and just as they appeared james would goad ruthven into a treasonable attitude whereon lennox and erskine would dirk him the second plan if this failed as it did because ruthven did not obey orders was to deceive gowrie into bringing the retinue under the turret window so that the king could open the window and cry treason as soon as he heard their voices and footsteps below this plan succeeds james yells out of the window not wanting many spectators he has somehow locked the door leading into the gallery while giving ramsay a hint to wait outside of the house within hearing and to come up by the back staircase which was built in a conspicuous tower the rest is easy gowrie may bring up as many men as he pleases but ramsay has had orders to horrify him by saying that the king is slain this was alleged and then to run him through as he gives ground or drops his points this after a decent form of resistance in which three of the king's four men are wounded master of the human heart like lord bateman james knows that ruthven will not merely leave him when goaded by insult and that gowrie hearing of his brother's death will not simply stand in the street and summon the citizens to secure a witness to the truth of his false version of the matter james must have begun by artfully bribing henderson gowrie's steward either simply to run away and then come in later with corroboration or actually to be present in the turret and then escape or perhaps the king told this man in the turret tale merely in the air and then henderson having run away in causeless panic later sees money in it and appears with a string of falsehoods chance loves art says aristotle and chance might well befriend an artist so capable and conscientious as his majesty to be sure mr hill burton says the theory that the whole was a plot of the court to ruin the powerful house of gowrie must at once after a calm weighing of the evidence be dismissed as beyond the range of sane conclusions those who formed it had to put one of the very last men in the world to accept of such a destiny into the position of an armed armed man who without any preparation was to render himself into the hands of his armed adversaries and cause a succession of surprises and acts of violence which by his own courage and dexterity he would rule to a determined and preconcerted plan if there was a royal plot without a plan then james merely intended to raise a brawl and go it blind this however is almost beyond the king's habitual and romantic recklessness we must prefer the theory of a subtly concerted and ably conducted plan constructed with alternatives so that if one string breaks another will hold fast that plan to the best of my poor powers i have explained to drop the figure of irony all this hypothesis is starkly incredible james was not a recklessly adventurous character to go weaponless with ruthven who wore a sword and provoke him into insolence if he had been ever so brave the plot is of a complexity quite impossible no sane man still less a timid man could conceive and execute a plot at the mercy of countless circumstances not to be foreseen suppose the master slain and gowrie a free man in the street he had only to sound the tocsin summon his devoted townsmen surround the house and ask respectfully for explanations take on the other hand the theory of gowrie's guilt here the motives for evil will on either side may be briefly stated since the matter of riccio fifteen sixty six 
the Ruthvens had been the foes of the crown. Gowrie's grandfather and father were leaders in the attack on Mary and Riccio. Gowrie's father insulted Queen Mary, while caged in Loch Leven Castle, by Amherst advances, so she declares. In 1582, Gowrie's father captured James and held him in degrading captivity. He escaped and was reconciled to his jailer, who, in 1584, again conspired and was executed, while the Ruthven lands were forfeited. By a new revolution, 1585 to 1586, the Ruthvens were reinstated. In July 1593, Gowrie's mother, by an artful ambuscade, enabled the Earl of Bothwell again to kidnap the king. In 1594, our Gowrie, then a lad, joined Bothwell in open rebellion. He was pardoned, and in August 1594 went abroad, traveled as far as Rome, studied at Padua, and summoned by the party of the Kirk, came to England in March 1600. Here he was petted by Elizabeth, then on almost warlike terms with James. For thirty years, every treason of the Ruthvens had been backed by Elizabeth, and Cecil, ceaselessly and continuously, had abetted many attempts to kidnap James. These plots were rife as late as April 1600. The object always was to secure the dominance of the Kirk over the King, and Gowrie, as the natural, noble leader of the Kirk, was recalled to Scotland in 1600 by the Reverend Mr. Bruce, the chief of the political preachers, whom James had mastered in 1596-97. to Gowrie, arriving, instantly headed the opposition, and on June 21, 1600, successfully resisted the king's request for supplies, rendered necessary by his hostile relations with England. Gowrie then left the court, and about July 20th went to hunt in Athol, his mother, who had once already lured James into a snare, residing at his Perth house. On August 1st, Gowrie warned his mother of his return, and she went to their strong castle of Durleton, near North Berwick and the sea, while Gowrie came to his Perth house on August 3rd, it being understood that he was to ride to Durleton on August 5th. Thither he had sent on most of his men and provisions. On August 5th, we know, he went on a longer journey. We have shown that a plot by James is incredible. There is no evidence to prove a plot by Gowrie, beyond the whole nature of the events, and the strange conduct of himself and his brother. But, if plot he did, he merely carried out, in the interests of his English friends, the traditional policy of his grandfather, his father, his mother, and his ally Bothwell, at this time an exile in Spain, maturing a conspiracy in which he claimed Gowrie as one of his confederates. While the king was a free man, Gowrie could not hope to raise the discontented barons and emancipate the preachers, yet more bitterly discontented, who had summoned him home. Let the king vanish and the coast was clear, the Kirk's party, the English party, would triumph. The inference is that the king was to be made to disappear, and that Gowrie undertook to do it. Two witnesses, Mr. Cowper, minister of Perth, and Mr. Rind, Gowrie's old tutor, averred that he was wont to speak of the need of extreme secrecy in the execution of a high and dangerous purpose. Such a purpose as the trapping of the king by a secret and sudden onfall was the mere commonplace of Scottish politics. Cecil's papers, at this period and later, are full of such schemes submitted by Scottish adventurers. That men so very young as the two Ruthvens should plan a device, romantic and perilous, is no matter for Marvel. The plot itself must be judged by its original idea, namely to lure James to Perth with only two or three servants at an early hour in the day. Matters fell out otherwise, but had the king entered Gowrie House early and scantily attended, he might have been conveyed across Fife, disguised in the train of Gowrie as he went to Durleton. Thence he might be conveyed by sea to Fast Castle, the impregnable Erie of Gowrie's and Bothwell's old ally, the reckless intriguer Logan of Restalrig. The famous letters which Scott, Titler, 
and Hilburton regard it as proof of that plot I have shown by comparison of handwritings to be all forged. But one of them, claimed by the forger as his model for the rest, is, I think, a feigned copy of a genuine original. In that letter, of Logan to Gowrie, he is made to speak of their scheme as analogous to one contrived against a nobleman of Padua, where Gowrie had studied. This remark, in a postscript, can hardly have been invented by the forger, Sprott, a low country attorney, a creature of Logan's. All the other letters are mere variations on the tune set by this piece. A plot of this kind is at least not impossible, quite like the incredible conspiracy attributed to James. The scheme was only one of scores of the same sort, constantly devised at the time. The thing next to impossible is that Henderson was left, as he declared, in the turret by Ruthven, without being tutored in his role. The King's party did not believe that Henderson here told truth. He had accepted the role, they said, but turned coward. This is the more likely, as, in December 1600, a gentleman named Robert Oliphant, as retainer of Gowrie, fled from Edinburgh, where certain revelations blabbed by him had come into publicity. He had said that, in Paris, early in 1600, Gowrie moved him to take the part of the armed man in the turret, that he had, with good reason, dissuaded him, that the Earl thereon left him and dealt with Henderson in that matter, that Henderson undertook it and yet fainted, that is, turned craven. Though nine years later in England the Privy Council acquitted Oliphant of concealing treason, had he not escaped from Edinburgh in December 1600, the whole case might have been made clear, for witnesses were then at hand. We conclude that as there certainly was a Ruthven plot, as the king could not possibly have invented and carried out the affair, and that as Gowrie, the leader of the Kirk party, was young, romantic, and Italianate, he did plan a device of the regular and usual kind, but was frustrated and fell into the pit which he had digged. But the Presbyterians would never believe that the young leader of the Kirk party attempted what the leaders of the godly had often done, and far more frequently had conspired to do, with the full approval of Cecil and Elizabeth. The plot was an orthodox plot, but to this day historians of Presbyterian and liberal tendencies preferred to believe that the king was the conspirator. The dead Ruthvens were long lamented, and even in the 19th century, the mothers in Perthshire sang to their babes, Sleep ye, sleep ye, my bonny Earl of Gowrie. A lady has even written to inform me that she is the descendant of the younger Ruthven, who escaped after being stabbed by Ramsay and Erskine, fled to England, married, and had a family. I in vain replied that young Ruthven's body was embalmed, exhibited in the Scottish Parliament, and hacked to pieces, which were set on spikes in public places, and that after these sufferings he was unlikely to marry. The lady was not to be shaken in her belief. In the Athenaeum, for August 28, 1902, Mr. Edmund Gossy recognizes Ramsay the Ruthven Slayer as author of A Century of English Sonnets, 1619, of which Lord Cobham possesses a copy apparently unique. The book was published at Paris by René Giffard. The Scottish name Gifford was at the time spelled Giffard, so the publisher was of Scottish descent. End of chapter 7